Well, let's turn back to the Gospel of Mark and chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, and we want to look tonight at verses 30 through 44. And let's begin with our scripture reading. So follow with me in Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they looked, uh, sorry, and they took up the twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Let's pray. Father, how thankful we are for the Lord Jesus Christ as uh, the one who alone can meet our needs, who is the, the bread of life. And as we consider this uh, a familiar passage to us, we pray that you would allow us to have a a fresh glimpse of something of the glory and the greatness of our Savior and that you would draw our hearts afresh to him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, there's a scene in Prince Caspian where Lucy encounters the great Aslan, great lion Aslan, the Christ figure, and she gazes into his large, wise face and and she says, Aslan, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one, he answered, not because you are bigger. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. I love that little scene because the more you and I spend time in the scriptures and and especially in the gospels meditating on our Lord Jesus Christ, we will find him bigger and bigger and more glorious, not because he is, but because our eyes are being opened to see more of his greatness and his glory. And our response will be to delight in him more. Well, we've 
uh, in jumping into chapter six, we skipped over some pretty amazing things Jesus has already done. He uh, forgave the sins of the paralytic and to the shock of many. Uh, We mentioned last night that he cast out demons, even the legion of demons in chapter five to show his supremacy over the the spiritual realm, the supernatural realm. There have been many healings, even raising the dead, showing his supremacy over the physical realm. He calmed that raging storm by just standing up and saying a few words. And immediately the text says there was a great calm to show his supremacy over creation itself. He taught with such truth and and authority that people marveled. They confessed they had never heard anything like it. And all these things that uh, point to the reality that, that Jesus is amazing. And Mark is presenting him to us as the Son of God. Mark wrote these things, he recorded these things and arranged these things so that we would see the Lord Jesus as he truly is and that we would trust him wholly and completely and increasingly with our whole hearts and our lives so that we would even be willing with John the Baptist to be faithful to him even if it costs us everything. And we're only in chapter 6. All four Gospels are are full of the amazing things that Jesus did and and taught. And all four culminate in the supreme work, his supreme work, his amazing death that we've been singing about and his uh, resurrection for our salvation. And when we get to the end of the fourth Gospel, the Gospel of John, you remember how John closes His gospel, he says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. In other words, John is telling us, I've just scratched the surface. There is so much more to the Lord Jesus. And yet there is only one miracle Jesus performed that is recorded in all four Gospels. And that is the one that is before us uh, this evening, the feeding of the 5,000. Why this miracle? Now, it's an extraordinary miracle to be sure, as we'll see. And I suppose that there are a number of reasons why all four Gospel writers chose to include this miracle. But as I was sort of pondering this and Thinking about it, I'd suggest one of the the main reasons this miracle is included in all four Gospels is because it speaks so dramatically and powerfully to the fact that Jesus alone is able to meet our needs. Here Here was a situation with no human solution. How could the disciples feed all those people with five loaves and two fish? It was impossible, but not for Jesus. He took five loaves and two fish and fed the entire multitude to the point where the text says they were all satisfied. And to put an exclamation point on it, there were plenty of leftovers. Now, I'm sure you're feeling satisfied after the wonderful meal we just enjoyed, but uh, the, the, the ladies that prepared it had a little more to work with than 
five loaves and two fish. And uh, we are so thankful for their efforts. But this is another level, isn't it? Jesus' miracle here. Now, John's gospel, in the follow-up to this miracle, we have this long discourse we call the bread of life discourse. And in a sense, it's, it's in that bread of life discourse that we get the, the real spiritual meaning of the miracle. Jesus, to summarize it, Jesus says in John 6:35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus alone can meet our need, and he does so abundantly. Well, let's look closely at our passage. First of all, we have a missionary report and an attempted retreat. Look at verse 30 again. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Last night we looked in uh, the first part of chapter 6 and saw Jesus sent the disciples out in groups of two to go on a short-term mission trip to, to preach and to heal in Jesus' name. Now, before Mark concludes that story, he relates the tragic execution of John the Baptist by Herod uh, that we just looked at before, before supper. And that was a lesson that following Jesus, serving him, isn't always easy and glamorous. It is costly. Well, the twelve had been sent out by Jesus on a mission throughout Galilee. And verse 30 tells us they've now returned and they're ready to give their missionary report. And true to missionary life, true to serving the Lord, things are rather hectic. Verse 31 says they were too busy even to eat. Well, they surely had earned a break from the pressing crowds. And Jesus acknowledges that. Jesus acknowledges that. And so he proposes a retreat. He says, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. The reality is that in the the busyness of, of serving the Lord, we can grow weary and exhausted. We need times of rest. Even more importantly, in those times of rest, we need time to be alone with Jesus. We need that every day, frankly. That's what these disciples needed most. And, and really, that's what we always need, just to spend time with Jesus. But certainly after busy times of ministry, or even in the midst of busy times of ministry, time alone with the Lord Jesus. You see, the life of a disciple isn't just about serving. It's also very much about being with him and learning from him so that when we serve, we have something to offer from the time that we have been spending with the Lord Jesus. And that's why uh, Mark 3.14 says, we mentioned this last night, and he appointed 12 so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. Both of those are important, and it's significant that he puts the, the being with him first before sending them out to preach. They needed to be with him. 
How are you, how am I doing with making time to be alone with the Lord Jesus, just to to listen to him, to seek him, to worship him, to pray? So important in our life as disciples of Jesus. So the disciples probably welcomed this proposal by Jesus and they headed out in a boat towards a quiet place, anticipating a wonderful time of retreat. And uh, this was a chance to rest, to recuperate. That sounded great. But actually, on this occasion, at least, it was not to be. And that brings us to verses 30. 3 and 34, Jesus' compassion for the crowds. Verse 33 says, Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So people saw Jesus and the disciples get in the boat and leave in in the boat. And so they they ran ahead that they spread the word. Jesus is going to be at at so and so place. And they arrived ahead of the boat so that that when the boat did arrive with Jesus and the disciples, there was already a great crowd waiting for them. Now, how would you feel? You've just been um, told that. You were going on a nice vacation. I would suggest that the disciples were maybe disappointed. Maybe the word annoyed would fit better the situation. They wanted a break. But Jesus isn't annoyed. He doesn't resent the crowd. He's not disappointed. Verse 34 gives us Jesus' reaction, and it's one of the great statements in the Gospels about our Savior. It says, and he had compassion on them. The word compassion that's used here is used only of Jesus and of those in parables who represent Jesus. As B.B. Warfield points out, it is the emotion which is most frequently attributed to him. The word speaks of, of depth of feeling. It refers to our intestines or our guts. And I find that very significant. Jesus didn't come into the world as a robotic or stoic miracle worker. He was sent by the Father's love for us. And he himself, as he walked among us, he was moved again and again to compassion for us in our frailty, in our sin, in our need. That's the kind of Savior we have. That's the kind of Savior we want. That's the kind of Savior we need. Maybe you've you've come here, even tonight, bearing heavy burdens. Maybe you're dealing with, with many struggles, and there have been moments when you doubt God's care. Hear the Word of God to you tonight in this passage. Jesus had compassion on them. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We learn in the book of Hebrews that that we have a sympathetic high priest who is moved by the feelings of our infirmities. We can go to our sympathetic high priest who has compassion for us. What a great Savior. Notice in verse 34 why in this 
instance, he had compassion on the crowd. It says, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without shepherds can't survive for very long. They need shepherds to to find pasture and water and to protect them from from predators. The people of Israel in the Old Testament in the desert without the leadership of Moses were compared to sheep without a shepherd. Numbers twenty seven seventeen, And that phrase became proverbial for uh, the people suffering as a result of bad leadership. Read uh, Ezekiel 34 sometime. It, it's all about how the shepherds had failed. The shepherds of Israel had failed to care for the sheep. And by contrast, the Messiah was prophesied to be a shepherd to the people. In fact, there's a great messianic prophecy in Ezekiel 34, verse 23, that says this. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. Jesus is that shepherd. And he sees the people, he has compassion for them, and in a sense what he does is, is feed them physically, yes, but spirit, more importantly, spiritually. Uh, you'll notice in verse 34 that Jesus' compassion moved him to take particular action. He didn't just feel sorry for the people and then walk away and carry on with his vacation. What did he do? He taught them. He taught them. Now, don't miss that. Verse 44 indicates the crowd was was 5,000 men. We know from Matthew's account that uh, there were additionally women and children. Now, if we had a crowd of over 10,000 people, what would we do to to minister to them, to keep them? Maybe we'd have a, a concert. We'd invite a famous band and, and, and that would keep them excited. Or maybe we'd put on a show or, or a movie. But that's not what Jesus does. He taught them, the text says, he taught them many things. Notice the, the connection. Jesus had compassion on them. And what they needed most was for him to speak the truth of God into their lives. They were like sheep without a shepherd. They needed him, the good shepherd, to instruct them. To bring to them the word of God. They needed to learn of him. They needed to learn to trust him, to be nourished by him, to be convicted by him, to be built up by him, to be corrected by the word of God and the truth of God that he brought. Again, that's why when we gather as as believers, we prioritize worship but we also prioritize the instruction and the proclamation of the word of God because we need the truth of God regularly spoken into our lives. I think of Peter when he's writing his second epistle, even though he's, he's writing on themes that would have been familiar to his readers, he wrote to them saying, I'm stirring your, your minds up by way of reminder. Stirring you up by what you know to be true. You need the truth of God to be brought to bear on your heart regularly. And, and that's why we preach the Bible. 
people might think you you all are strange folks coming out on a Saturday night listening to the Bible. We need that. We need God's truth spoken to our minds and consciences on a regular basis. We need the word of Christ to feed us, to nourish us, because it points us again and again to him, the true bread of life who alone can sustain our spiritual lives and nurture them. Well, that brings us to the disciples' dilemma. Look at verse 35. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Again, you can picture the scene here. It was getting late. They were in a remote remote location. There was no supermarket around. There was no fast food place on the corner. Uh, So the disciples came to Jesus with their advice. Again, verse 35, this is a desolate place. The hour is late. And then they give Jesus some advice. Send them away to going go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Seems a little bit bold, doesn't it? They tell Jesus what he he needed to do. But really, their suggestion actually seems like a reasonable solution to the problem. And actually, it's Jesus' response in verse 37 that seems unreasonable. He says to them, you give them something to eat. And they immediately think, okay, you want us to go into the nearest town and buy food for everyone? But there's no way, they know, there's no way they have enough money to buy enough for for 10,000 plus people. Uh, 200 denarii was more than half a year's wages. So they're in an impossible situation here. James Edwards writes, the disciples are swept away by the magnitude of the problem, just as Moses had been when confronted with the need to feed the Israelites in the wilderness. Moses said to the Lord in, in Numbers eleven thirteen, where am I to get meat to give to all this people? Jesus tells the disciples to take inventory and they managed to come up with a whopping five loaves and two fish. Now, don't think of the loaves here as the, the, the sliced bread that we buy in the grocery store today. These loaves would have been more uh, like pita-sized flatbread. Uh, the fish would have been salted and, and dried. And we know from John's account that these were basically one boy's lunch. As Andrew said in that passage, what are, the, what are they for so many? Right? A couple of filet of fish sandwiches for thousands of people. Seriously? Ah, the problem uh, was the disciples were looking at things from a very human perspective. They failed to have an adequate view of the situation because they didn't have an adequate view of Christ. That's a common problem you and I have too often. 
We often come to God with our human solutions. We face some kind of hardship, and and like the disciples, we give God directions for how he should be dealing with this situation. That's very different from true prayer, right? In, in, In true prayer, we humbly come before the Lord, and we bring our requests to him. He encourages us to do so. He welcomes that, but in, in true prayer, we don't give God directions. Rather, we humble ourselves and we say with Jesus, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I want to align with your purposes and your ways, and I'm not going to presume to give you commands. I'm going to lay my requests before you, but ultimately, I'm laying this before you and not my wisdom. As fallen humans, we we also come up with human solutions to our our deepest needs, our need before God, our our need to deal with the guilt that we feel. A need uh, we we come up with solutions for how we might be right with Him, and we create what we might call religious solutions. Uh, We do religious things and we have ceremonies and services and 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 charity hoping to impress God. Uh, We try to do good works. We try to be a good person, hoping that in the end our good deeds will outweigh our bad deeds. In other religions, we hope that we will get another shot in the cycle of reincarnation. All these All these human solutions are as inadequate as five loaves and two fish before a hungry crowd of thousands. We need to come to Christ for the solution for eternal life. We need to humble ourselves before him and acknowledge our utter, utter poverty before the greatness of our need, our inability to do anything ourselves. We need to come to him and and trust him because he is the solution. It's in him, it's in his work, his death, his resurrection that, that we alone can find life and hope and satisfaction for our hungry souls. And so we come to Jesus' miraculous solution. Verse 39. Then he commanded them all to sit down in, in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Now notice verse 39 again. He commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Jesus is being presented here as the good shepherd. Does that remind you of anything? Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. What a picture. The seating arrangement resembles a banquet with people set in dining groups. Now, it's worth noting in in our context of Mark 6, 
that in in contrast to um, the previous section, you remember Herod was throwing this banquet for the leading men of Galilee. In this passage, we might say Jesus is throwing a very different banquet. Here's how uh, Mark Strauss describes it. While Galilee's aristocrats feast sumptuously in Herod's ornate palace, Jesus feeds the poor and humble, the true heirs of the kingdom, in the open fields on the shores of Galilee. Mark doesn't go into details about the mechanics of this miracle. It would be interesting to to have sat and watched Jesus perform this miracle. But after he gave thanks, he broke the loaves along with the fish. He just keep, kept giving more. The disciples would come back and there would always be more to distribute. And it, it wasn't that everyone got just a, you know, a little portion, a, a bite or two to tide them over. Verse 42 says they all ate and were satisfied. And there were leftovers, a basket actually for each disciple, as perhaps a slight rebuke to their lack of faith. They ended with more food than they began with. Such is the compassion of Jesus Christ in meeting our needs. He doesn't just give us enough to get by. He abundantly meets our needs. I think of Paul in Ephesians 1 saying of Christ, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Or when Paul gives his testimony in First Timothy chapter 1, he declares the grace of our Lord overflowed to, to me. Or I like uh, Darby's translation. The grace of our Lord surpassingly overabounded. Christ is an abundant Savior. He's more than able to meet our needs. And that's why this account uh, is repeated four times in the gospel. It's designed to teach us that he alone can meet our needs and he does so abundantly. Well, what a wonderful passage. What a wonderful miracle. What what are some things that we can can take from this passage? Well, the more that you ponder this miracle, the more I think truly incredible it really is. But not according to liberal theology. Liberal scholars reinterpret this miracle by saying something like this. Well, of course, Jesus didn't feed 5,000 plus with five loaves and two fish. What, what really happened was that his example of love inspired others to, to share their food that they had been stashing and hiding for themselves. Suddenly, they became generous. So it was a miracle of generosity. William Barclay disappointingly says, quote, It was not the miracle of the multiplication of loaves and fishes. It was the miracle of changing selfish people into generous people at the touch of Christ. I'm afraid that's the miracle of missing the point. This this miracle or the miracle in, in this particular view doesn't call for us to believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. Instead, the story should inspire us to share our lunch 
or to donate to the local food bank. Now, surely that's, that's a good lesson, that's a good thing, but it's not the lesson of this text. Sadly, that take on the story leaves us with a Jesus who could never meet our real needs. He could never save us from our sins or rise triumphantly from the dead. The approach of liberal theology is an exercise in unbelief, plain and simple. And because of their unbelief, they entirely miss the glory of Christ that's on display here. No, we're right to understand this. Just as the passage reveals, this is an incredible miracle performed by the one who is himself the creator. This miracle points to the true identity of of Jesus Christ as the son of God. Did you catch the the passage refers to this location as a desolate place? That 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 calls to mind Israel's time in the wilderness, actually the same word for wilderness that is is used. And at that time, the people of Israel needed food and God provided daily manna from heaven. Likewise, in our story, Jesus is the one who miraculously provides bread in the wilderness for the people. But the provision as John 6 clarifies for us, was a symbol of an even greater provision that only Jesus can give. Again, in John 6, Jesus clarifies, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I think there are some also some important lessons about service and ministry that we see through the interaction between Jesus and the disciples. Again, I'm drawn to verse 37, and, and, and really we might ask, why does Jesus tell the disciples, you give them something to eat? Surely, surely it was to help them understand that they could not do that by themselves. They needed to learn to trust Jesus. All they could muster, five little loaves and two small fish, were completely, laughably inadequate for the task. The situation was literally impossible. And yet, they learned to give what they had over to Jesus and watch him do the extraordinary. I think there's a biblical principle here, isn't there? Think of Moses. He felt entirely inadequate to go to Pharaoh and lead the people out of Egypt. All he had was the the staff in his hand. Moses could do nothing with that staff, but God worked wonders. Or think of David. Classic story of David going up against the Philistine champion and warrior Goliath with a sling and a a few stones, and yet God gave the victory. Now think of applying that to, to ourselves and to our ministries. What can I do for the Lord in and of myself? What can you do? Truth is, nothing. But when we give ourselves to the Lord Jesus, He delights to do His work through us. The 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon said this, 
The church's first duty is when she looks to her resources and feels them to be utterly insufficient for her work, still to bring all that she has to Christ. Spurgeon, as you know, is probably the greatest preacher of the 19th century, and people came from all over to hear him preach. He was incredibly gifted. Preachers still quote him today, as I just did. But he was... He was very aware of his inadequacy apart from Christ. And he wrote this in regard to the feebleness of the five loaves and two fish. He said, It is a good thing for us to know how very poor we are and how far from being able to meet the wants of people around us. And then he, he applied it to himself. He said, truly, he who writes this comment has often felt as if he had neither loaf nor fish. And yet for some 40 years and more, he has been a full handed waiter at the king's great banquets. A full handed waiter in the king's great banquets. I find that helpful personally. Uh, The Lord commanded the disciples to feed the people. They couldn't. They turned over what they had to Christ and he provided so that in the end they were able to carry out his command after all. With what he supplied. Uh, Not only in in preaching like Spurgeon, but in whatever way we serve. Our job is to give away what Jesus provides. Philip Reichen calls this miracle virtually a parable for Christian ministry. He explains it this way. He says, whatever we have to give is woefully inadequate, but we offer our time and our talents the best that we are able to give. Then Jesus takes it and by the supernatural power of his grace, he uses it to help people. I think that's an important perspective as we serve the Lord together. It's a valuable lesson. But really, I think the main lesson of the text is the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we come back to the key question of the Gospel of Mark. Who is Jesus? What do we discover from this passage? Jesus is the one who has compassion on the lost, on on this. The, the, the ones who are like sheep without a shepherd. In the Lord Jesus, we have a Savior who, who genuinely and deeply cares for us. He's not indifferent to our struggles. He has compassion on us. In fact, He is the embodiment of divine mercy. He is never too busy for us. And in His, com- and, and His compassion, moves him to take action. He teaches us. He brings the truth of God to our lives. And sometimes that can be painful, if we're honest, because it will expose our sin. It will expose our helplessness before God. But his compassion also moved him to provide the ultimate remedy for us, not merely in providing bread for our bellies, but in providing redemption and life and nourishment for our souls when he went to the cross and died for us. Who is Jesus? He's the one who meets our needs. He's the good shepherd who cares for the sheep 
and who will lay down his life for the sheep. He's a new and greater Moses who feeds God's people in the wilderness. But even more importantly, he's the bread of life who feeds our souls. He's our spiritual nourishment, our provision, our sustenance, our satisfaction. Is he yours? J.C. Ryle expressed it so well when he wrote, The heart of man can never be satisfied with the things of this world. It is always empty and hungry and thirsty and dissatisfied till it comes to Christ. It is only they who hear Christ's voice and follow him and feed on him by faith who are satisfied. May each of us come to Christ and find in him the nourishment, the life, and the satisfaction that can only be found in him. Let's pray. Father, what a wonderful passage that reveals to us so much about our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We confess that we come to him empty-handed, and yet he meets our every need, including our deepest need of forgiveness of sins and, and eternal life, new life in him. We thank you so much for him. We pray that, that, Lord Jesus, you would be honored in our midst and in our lives as we seek to follow you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.